morning. Today's a good day. Um, my name is Jesse. If, if I haven't met you, if you're online, if you're watching for the first time, or if you're here, I want to welcome you. Thank you for being here. Glad to have you. Uh, we have uh, a couple ways. If you are new, we'd love for you to connect with us. One is our app and our website. Obviously, all of our information is there. Uh, you have a Bible on that app, a place to take notes on that app, all of our events, all the things that are going on are, are there. So I want to encourage you to sign up for that. And then We've changed the way that we do some of our programs and uh, our bulletins. So if you noticed uh, this morning, if you're a regular, you got a little Haggai handout because that's the book we're going to be in. So you can go ahead and turn there if you want uh, to the book of Haggai. And if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. One of the ushers will gladly hand you one. Uh, and if you're new, um, in front of you is a little bulletin. We're going to redesign that. But in front of your pocket, in, in the pocket in front of you is a bulletin. If you take that, if you're new and you take that to the info booth, we have a gift for you. Uh, we've repackaged our visitor packages, so uh, you get a free cup of coffee in town. Uh, as a visitor, you get a, uh, the Haggai ESV journal Bible that we uh, usually recommend for studies like this, and so if you're a visitor, please take advantage of that. And then afterwards, um, Jenny Howard will come up when I'm done uh, with the message, and she'll explain to you kind of the transition process we're gonna do in this building to celebrate Wayne and Sandy as they retire, and we're going we're gonna to eat together and all of that. And then I guess there's uh, a football game later on today, and someone told me to say, go Bengals, I guess. Is that, is that, is that <laughs> some of you don't care? Some of you are like, eh, this is football. Huh. All right. Um, so here's, the, uh, here's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, and then over the next few weeks, we're going to stay in this book for a little while. I'm going to give you uh, pretty much basically a 3,000-foot overview of the book of Haggai. And it, what's really interesting about this book is you, you often don't hear people uh, preach on it all that often. If, if you have, it's usually a, a quick little series. Someone actually told me this morning, I have never heard a message in the book of Haggai. Uh, and for myself, in studying this, uh, it, it, is, it has reawakened some things in me. And it's one of those books I'm like, man, this, this needs to be preached uh, more often. And so I'm going to give you a, uh, an overview of what's happening. And the title of the message this morning is, uh, where do you invest? What are your investments? Uh, where do you put your time? Where do you put your money? Uh, where do you put your treasures? Where do you put your energy? Where do you put your passion? What do you invest in? And are you going to get uh, good dividends on that? Several years back, 2005, I think it was the first year, uh, my wife and I had moved back to Truckee from San Diego. And we partook in a Dave Ramsey course. And Dave Ramsey, of course, teaches, uh, you know, how to budget your money and all of that. And then where do you invest? And I remember Dave Ramsey at that time, 2005, said, hey, if you're going to take money and you're going to invest it, you should at least get a 6% return on your investment over inflation and all that. So, which means today it's probably changed because of inflation. It's like 25%, I guess, <laughs> something along those lines. Uh, and, and so good luck with that. Um, but this book, in some ways, is about investments. And so what I want to do this morning, I want to encourage you to turn to Haggai chapter 1, verse 8. And I want to read to you uh, the verse that I think encompasses this book, uh, the theme verse, if you will. Uh, and so I know it's a short verse, uh, but I'm going to ask you to stand with me anyways, because even though it's short, it is God's word. And as we stand, we're presenting our hearts before the Lord, our minds uh, that we would hear from him. Haggai chapter 1, verse 8. Build the house so that I may take pleasure in it, 
and be honored. And Lord, that is what we want to do this morning. We want to honor you. And of course, as we honor you, Lord, we know that you're going to share with us what it is we need to hear. For some of us, it will be conviction. Some, it will be comfort, and boy, that is needed. For some, it will encourage our strength, and for others, it will be a balm that heals. And so I pray, Lord, that your spirit would do your job. Lord, my job is to prepare, to study, to preach. Your job is to move your people. And so we trust you for that this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. Right, have a seat. All right. How many of you like history? How many of you like history? Okay, because if you don't, you're doomed to repeat it. So here's a little bit of historical background that's important for you to understand what's happening in Haggai around the year 520 BC. One of the amazing things about this book is that it literally gives us five time stamps in this book that we can go back and say, this literally happened on this date. And these five time stamps correspond with basically five sermonettes that God gives to this guy by the name of Haggai. And you can look, if you take a look, go ahead and, and look with me and go to, um, uh, uh, go to the ver- first verse. This is the first uh, date. August 29th is the date. So look at verse 1. The second year of King Darius, uh, the sixth month on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came. Go ahead and jump down to verse 15. This is September 21st. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month of the second year of Darius the king, so that's the second oracle. The third one, chapter 2, verse 1, seventh month, 21st day. Uh, the fourth one, December 18th, is in chapter 2, verse 10, on the 24th day of the ninth month. And then the fifth and last is in chapter 2, verse 20, which is December 20th, the 24th day of the month. You have these timestamps that cover a four-month period of time. And the reason that Haggai is speaking is for this reason. So I want you to, to follow the, the biblical journey of the people of God, uh, especially here, which what we're dealing with is the southern tribes of Judah. And essentially what has occurred is the prophets have been prophesying to the people of Israel that if they do not turn back to God and they do not worship God as he is commanded, then God is going to bring punishment, exile, and captivity. Now, if you remember, at that time, they had Solomon's temple, beautiful and lavish and amazing. And sure enough, the, prophet, uh, the prophecy is fulfilled. The Babylonians come. They invade southern uh, Judah. They demolish Solomon's temple and all of its glory. They take the people of Israel back to Babylon several hundred miles away, and that is where they live. Now, the Babylonians held them in captivity, but then God allows the Persians to come in. The Persians defeat the Babylonians, and a guy by the name of King Cyrus takes over. King Cyrus, as he takes over in the first year of his reign, he releases all of those who are in captivity. He opens up the door and says, go ahead, go back home. And he allows them to do whatever they want. Some stay, some go. And a remnant of about 50,000 individuals make the journey back to Jerusalem. Now, uh, one of the things that's interesting here is, is some people would say, well, you know, Haggai's a short book. It's only two chapters. Uh, however, in order to really kind of understand everything that's going on, you've got to 
know the book of Ezra and the book of Zechariah because Ezra tells us what was happening in the people's hearts during the captivity. Jeremiah preached during the captivity. And Jeremiah is another really large major prophet. This is a minor prophet. Doesn't mean that he was short. Doesn't mean uh, that, that it's less than the other prophets. It's just small. It's only two chapters, second smallest book in all of the Bible. And this is what Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 tells us in regards to King Cyrus. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord came by the mouth of Jeremiah that it might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of the kingdom, and he also put into writing, thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all of his people, may his God be with him. Let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God, he is the God who is in Jerusalem, and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver, gold, goods, with beasts, besides freewill offerings. For the house of God is in Jerusalem. So this remnant moves. They go back to Jerusalem and they've been put in charge by King Cyrus. Go back to Jerusalem. Go back for a specific reason. And what's the reason? Build the house of the Lord. Build back the temple. It's been destroyed and you've got to go back and you've got to build it. And so they do. They make the journey and they depart from their captivity and they are finally free. And what they find is in Jerusalem is not a sight that they're really happy to see. The desert has encroached upon the land and upon the orchards and upon all of, all of their, their farmlands. And in the middle of the city sits the desolation of the temple, the destruction, just the foundation is laid there. One author says that the ruined temple was like a skeleton or a dead body decaying in Jerusalem, making everything contaminated. So the people come back, they're free, they're put in charge, they're put in charge to build the temple, and you know how long it takes them to start? 16 years. Why? Well, there's several reasons why. Uh, some believe it's because the Jews, some of the Jews considered Babylon home, they'd been in captivity for 70 years. So for some of the Jewish people, that's the only kingdom they knew, the Babylonian Empire. Uh, in fact, one of the reasons uh, that they also believe that they didn't build is because the Samaritans opposed the Jews. And the, the, the Samaritans were kind of like a, they were considered like a half-breed, half-Jew and half-some-other nation. And so here they are being opposed. Uh, their, their houses are desolate. The building isn't there. And, and, and the reality is they probably had it decently good in Babylon. Some believe that they didn't actually build the houses because of the commandment in Jeremiah while they were in captivity. Do you remember the commandment? He tells the people why you're in Jeremiah 29, verses 5 through 7. Captivity, build your houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry, have sons, have daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage. And he goes on to say, you will be prosperous. So God's commandment while in captivity is for them to continue to thrive as a people. This translates for us because essentially to a certain degree, we're in a kind of captivity until the Lord returns. And until the Lord returns, we're to marry, we're to rejoice, we're to invest in God's kingdom and we're to live for him. Now you have several different characters 
in this book we need to be aware of. The first one is Haggai, which means festal one or my feast. We actually don't know that much about him. He's mentioned in Ezra. Uh, but it's believed the reason we probably don't know that much about him is that the 50,000 re- people remnant probably pretty much knew who he was. He was a well-known character, a well-known figure. Some believe that Haggai was probably uh, a nickname. Uh, someone said to me after the service, because I mentioned his name means festal one or my feast, he said, would that be translated in modern English as party boy? <laughs> Uh, it's believed that Haggai probably was named Festival One or Festival One because he was born on a festival, but we're not completely sure. But he's the prophet. His job is to preach. His job is to share God's word. The other individual we have is Zerubbabel, the grandson of King Jehoiakim, which is the last king of Israel before their captivity. So Zerubbabel is actually in line of the king. He's a king figure for us in this book. He's like the king of Israel, even though he hasn't been totally been given king status. And eventually we will see that through the king Zerubbabel, through the lineage of Zerubbabel, will be born who? Jesus. And so now we have the prophet, and in addition to the prophet, we have the king. But that's not enough for us. We also need Joshua, not Joshua from the Old Testament that we know of in Exodus and so on, but actually Joshua. Most of our translations say Joshua, but Joshua is better so we don't get confused. He's actually the spiritual leader. He's the priest. He's a direct descendant of Aaron the Levite, and the Levites are the ones who, who uh, do the whole temple business and all of that. Now, this is the first time in 70 years that prophet priest, and king are working together as a team. Before that, the prophets would preach. The priest wouldn't always do what they were supposed to do. The king wouldn't always do what he is supposed to do. Now, finally, under this reawakening, God uses Haggai to awaken the king, to awaken the priest, that they would go build this temple. But the people are being lazy and indifferent to build this temple. And we're going to talk about that here a little bit more in a moment. But I think in order for us, as we, we just, again, we're just doing a, an overview of this book. I think it's important for us to understand the major themes that God is going to cover within this text, the major things that we need to know. Here's the first one. Obviously, I already mentioned it, is the importance of the temple. The, the, the temple represented several things, okay, this, this building. Number one, it, resem- it, it, it represented God's uh, glory, right? Look at Haggai chapter 1, verse 8. Go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house. That's the temple. Build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be what? Glorified. Glorified. God's saying, again, that's why the verse that I mentioned earlier is kind of that theme verse. Build the house so that I may be honored, (laughs) so that I would be glorified. Um, In addition to the glory of God, it also represents the presence of God. The Old Testament in the temple is a way for us to understand that, that God, God's presence is with us. Look at Haggai chapter 1, verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people the Lord's message. And what was the message? I'm with you. I'm with you. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. If you look at chapter 2, verse 4, you'll find the same language. I am with you. One commentator says this idea of the temple and the presence is a type of 
uh, incarnation of all that God stood for and all that he required and all that he could do for his people. So this building represents the glory of God, which is to say the weightiness of God, that God would weigh weighty upon us. It represents the presence of God, that he's there, but the temple was also the place of sacrifice and forgiveness. It was the place where one got clean, which was a big deal, a really big deal. In fact, go to chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. And there's this little verse in here. There's this little section here. Because the temple's not there, God is speaking, and he's trying to give them an idea of how how this impacts them. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 12. If someone carries holy meat that is meat sacrificed to God, in the fold of his garment, so that, (laughs) can we just, I just saw this for the first time reading this. This dude's carrying meat in his pocket. That's awesome. Okay, this is my kind of dude. Um, (laughs) I apologize. Where was I? The word, uh, where was I? I so distracted myself. This verse 12? It just got hot in here again. Um, if someone carries holy meat in his pocket <laughs> and he touches, he touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? So this is set apart meat, sacrifice to God. If it touches the bread in your pocket, I'm sure it's not a pocket. It's probably a satchel or something. But if the meat touches the bread, does the bread become unclean by the meat? And the priest said, no. Something that, that, that is clean that touches something else that is essentially clean, it doesn't make it unclean. But then Haggai said this, he asked the next question, if something, uh, if something is unclean, if someone is unclean by contact with a dead body, verse 13, and touches any of this, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, yes, it does. So if something's unclean and it touches something clean, that thing becomes unclean. And if that unclean thing continues to touch clean things, it continues to get dirty. Well, essentially what God is saying is holiness spreads differently than unholiness. Okay, unholiness contaminates and continues to contaminate, right? Are we, are, are we on the same track together? Because we've dealt with this in the last two years, right? If you're not six feet away from somebody, you're going to contaminate somebody six feet from you, and then they're going to contaminate, and they're going to contaminate. And because there's nowhere to get clean, there's nowhere to get forgiveness, you as a group of people will live in your uncleanliness and you'll only add to your uncleanliness and add to your uncleanliness. If there is no temple, there is no place to sacrifice for forgiveness. And if there's no place for forgiveness, the people will perpetually live in dirtiness. And I'm speaking specifically of their soul. And the nations, some of the nations didn't want this. They opposed them. And because of this opposition, And because of the fact that the people were probably depressed at the state of the temple, they don't act, they're filled with lethargy, and so they end up instead doing the opposite of what they should be doing. And here's kind of the great rebuke, chapter 1, verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? You know what God just said? We're going to meddle a little bit. We have to. God essentially just said, hey, listen, you've, you've taken some very expensive 
pieces of paneling. It's actually cedar. You've taken some really nice pieces of wood that, that you've seen fit to put into your home, and my house lies in ruins. Here's translation. Uh, you got a really nice car. God's saying, I don't have a house to live in. Uh, Gavin and I were talking about this a little bit, and he said, he said it's kind of like the equivalent of, you know, all the zone coverage in football, but you can't name the Bible. You can't name the books of the Bible. Right? You, you, you ski every single weekend, but you're not ever really going to church. You're filled with the knowledge of all kinds of things, but you're not glorifying God. That, that's the takeaway of essentially what Haggai's saying. You've got these paneled houses, and you're taking care of your creature comforts, uh, comforts and for 16 years... You're content to just leave my house in ruins. And on occasion, it's believed that every now and then the priest would offer a sacrifice on the temple foundation to try to appease God, to be clean, but it isn't the way that the Lord ultimately works. And the temple ultimately, ultimately points to Jesus. The temple decaying, falling apart, signifies the decaying relationship that they have with the Lord. So as I've been studying, I don't know if you're like this, but you know when you start studying, studying something and, and you start kind of getting into the nitty gritty of, of whatever that thing is you're studying and you start to kind of grow a passion for it and you start to, your heart starts kind of to swell, to swell you know? And, and so this, this whole last couple weeks I've been studying Haggai, I've been bothering the staff with questions from Haggai that I know they don't have the answers to. And one of those questions I asked them this week was I said, do you know how many temples are in the Bible? And of course, you know, there's all kinds of little answers and all of that, how many temples there are. And again, we just need to understand the presence of God and, and, and the fact that, that, that there are these temples that point us ultimately to Jesus, right? The temple ultimately represents for us the, the presence of God, the forgiveness of God, making, becoming clean with God and ultimately points us to Jesus. So so let me ask you another question. The first question I asked was, where are your investments? Now we'll ask a Bible question. How many temples are there? It kind of depends on your eschatology a little bit. And I'm going to disclose to you where my leanings are and what I share here. But there's eight. Eight temples. The first temple is given to Moses. It's the tabernacle. It's the mobile temple, right? We're going mobile. And God's presence moved wherever the people went. When God's presence lifted, the people moved. When God's presence settled, the people settled. And that presence settled over the tabernacle, the mobile temple. Then later, King David comes up with the plans of an ornate, beautiful, large, and amazing temple. But because of his sin, God says, you don't get to build the temple. So in 966 to 586, Solomon's temple is built. As I shared with you, uh, as the story continues, the Babylonian Empire, King Nebuchadnezzar comes in and they destroy Solomon's temple and the people are in captivity, which brings us to the point we are in now, 569, 169 BC, Zerubbabel's temple is to be built. So now we have this third temple, but then Antiochus comes and this temple is desecrated and then later Herod will refurbish it build it back up, and that will be known as Herod slash Zerubbabel's temple. Then in chat, if you remember of that temple, let's just do a little bit more digging, the, the temp, that particular temple, that's the temple that Jesus taught in. 
That's the temple that Jesus threw the, the tables over because people were being taken advantage of. This is the temple that Jesus said, guess what's going to happen to this temple? It's going to be destroyed. And then he says of that temple, it's going to be rebuilt in three days because he's not actually talking about the building, but he's talking about himself. Because then later, the New Testament will tell us the fifth temple, which is the present temple that we have now, resides in the heart of the people. Us. And then later, a tribulation will come, an antichrist will build a temple, and then after that, during the millennium, the Messiah will build a temple during the millennium reign, and then after that, when that is all said and done, there will be an eternal kingdom where Jesus himself is the temple. So that's the importance of the temple. It represents the fact that God is with us, that God doesn't want to abandon us. It represents forgiveness. It represents cleanliness. It represents all of these things. And so God is calling the people, don't be lethargic. Don't invest just in your home, but invest in the kingdom of God. Now, I'm a Bible enough guy to not take this message where I naturally wanted to take this message. I'm going to do it a little bit, but not totally. Because <laughs> th- this book, along with Nehemiah, which comes later when Jerusalem is to be rebuilt and the, and the wall is to be rebuilt, oftentimes you'll hear a message out of Haggai or maybe Nehemiah, and it'll be build the wall, build the kingdom, and, and they use that to do a building campaign. Right? So I could totally be up here and be like, okay, we've got to take care of the church, guys. We need better walls. We need a better roof. We need a better building but I would be doing a disservice to the text. Because God essentially isn't saying you have a building problem. He's saying you have a heart problem. You're spending all this emotion and all of this energy and all of this time on your own selves, your own creature comforts. You're paneling your houses. You've got a really nice wood floor, but you've ignored sitting in the presence of God. You've got a really nice home with a really killer view. You've got the nice car and the nice close and you've neglected your relationship with the Lord. That's the essence of the temple and the essence of the book. My friends, we have to invest into the kingdom of God and not into the kingdom of self. So that's the first major theme, the the, the temple, the presence of God. Second major theme is the prophet's word is God's word. The prophet's word is God's word. You can see behind me all of the passages that represent this. Uh, Several places it will say, by the hand of Haggai, the message came. That literally just means that God spoke through Haggai to his people. Several times you will see, thus says the Lord. And then you'll also see, declares the Lord, the voice of the Lord, and the Lord's message. And so we have to understand that when God speaks through his scripture, when God speaks to his people through a preacher, he ultimately is saying this is God speaking to his people. Uh, Now, hopefully, the preacher does his job to preach in a way that leads people to the Bible, leads people to the gospel, and ultimately leads people to Jesus. I love the way John Piper says it. I've been uh, rereading one of his books on preaching, and he says it like this. He says, preachers should preach in a way that is exaltation. So his first premise is when, when the preacher preaches, he's preaching in a way where he's worshiping Jesus, 
And the audience, in a way, is almost spectating that, which encourages them to, encourages them to also want to worship Jesus. Right? The, the attention is on Christ. And then that kind of preaching, he says like Haggai is doing in this book, because it's God's words to God's people, Piper goes on to say this kind of preaching doubles the capacity of your spiritual lungs, makes the eyes of your heart dazzled with the brightness and the glory of God, awakens the capacity of your soul for all kinds of spiritual enjoyment you didn't even know existed. Right? So, so we desire, we want to have our preachers preach in such a way like Haggai that moves people to Jesus and not to man. Amen? You should all nod your head. Yeah. Don't give me a preacher. Give me Jesus. Give me a preacher that gives me Jesus. So God speaks through Haggai and he speaks to the people. God's words come through Haggai. That's the second theme. Third theme, the Lord is sovereign over all. He's sovereign over everything. In fact, 14 times in 38 verses, you'll find the term Lord of hosts. Everyone say Lord of hosts. hosts. That's just a way of saying God's sovereign. He's over all. He gives the infallible perfect word. He controls the outcome of his people. Look at Haggai chapter one, verse nine. He says, I blew it away. Haggai 2.17. I struck you that your toil would be hard and your labor would give, what's it say in 2.17? Mildew. You know what God's saying? God essentially tells the people this. Okay, you showed up, and the desert's encroaching on all of your crops. You've all seen snow drifts, right? Well, I've had the pleasure of visiting Palm Springs on multiple occasions, because that's where my wife was raised. We go to Palm Springs, and every now and then there'll be a drift of wind, and the sand will just blow right over those roads. And they'll just be, just like we would have a lot of snow on the road, there'll be sections you got to be careful on because the whole part of that road will be just covered with sand. And as the deserts encroached on their crops and on all of their, their, uh, their orchards and the things that they were doing, God essentially is saying, are you making a connection with the fact that you're not yielding any crops and the fact that you're not paying any mind to me? And what he's saying is the reason that you're not getting good crops is because you're not worshiping me. Or as, again, as I was chatting with Gavin about this, he said, uh, I think his words were that you used, uh, was it, um, your lack of snow may be connected with this. Your lack of moisture. Now, I'm not saying that's what's happening in Truckee, California. But it does make that connection. Can you see the dryness of your soul is connected with the reality that you're not paying any attention to me? So God actually puts his hand over nature itself and controls nature because he is sovereign over all. He also controls the outcome of the nations. Look at Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. I will shake the nations. Why? so that the treasure of all the nations shall come in and I will fill the house with glory, says the Lord. Hey, I'm not sure if you noticed. Like, it sounds like Russia's doing something. I guess. And we look at that and go, what are they doing? Well, the Lord's shaking the nations. Why is he shaking the nations? That we would give attention, that we would give heed to the Lord. In addition to that, 
he, he motivates his people to action. God's so sovereign and so beautiful and so great. He actually uses his spirit, his Holy Spirit, to motivate the people to get back to work. And after about a, a month's time in the message, the people will begin to build. But look at Haggai chapter 1, verse 14. The Lord, what? Stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. And then it goes on and says, he also stirred up Joshua's heart and the high priest's heart and the remnant of the people, and then they went to work on the house of the Lord. God has a way of stirring up his people to do the work of God. Now, this may not be so encouraging for you, but it's a, this, this, this reality is the only way I can preach. Because it's not my job to change your heart. It's not my job to stir you up. It's my job to preach the Christ, and it's Christ's job through his Holy Spirit to stir up your affections for where you should be investing in the kingdom of God. It'd be really easy for me to manipulate and say, and this is true, just to inform you, we're, we're tens of thousands of dollars behind on some building maintenance. It'd be easy for me to share that and go, you know what Haggai tells you to do. But again, it's not a building problem. It's a heart problem. Are you working on your heart? Are you allowing the Lord to work on your heart? Are you in the presence of God? Are you allowing him to move you? Are you placing your soul in such a way before the Lord that God would say to you this morning, you need to reevaluate the way you invest? And you know I'm not just speaking financially. The fourth theme is this idea of the restoration of David's house. Uh, let me show you the verse. It's an it's a interesting verse. It took a little bit of work for me to try to understand what was happening here. Like I said, I thought every now and then, you know, I, I'll go like, okay, I'm going to do a short little book in the Old Testament, and it'll be quick, and, and hopefully it'll be a little bit easier for me to study. And then all of a sudden, you start studying, and you realize all of the tendrils of this go into Jeremiah and Ezra and, and all of these different places. You're like, okay, I've got a lot of reading to do here to try to figure out what is being said here. And there's this verse that took a little bit of work the last couple weeks for me to try to understand what in the world he was saying. Look at the very end of chapter 2. Verse 23. On that day declares the Lord of what? Oh, there it is. There it is again. I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, that's the king, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So I started to go, okay, Zerubbabel is the king, and eventually the king is going to, through that lineage, the Christ is going to come, and you have this idea of the signet ring. And so the signet ring, the signet ring was literally a ring that the, the king would wear, only the king would wear it, and there would be a symbol on it that represented the fact that he and he alone is king. So when the king would make a, de a declaration, he would give a message, he would take that message, seal it inside of an envelope of some kind, put a thing of wax, melt the wax, take the signet ring, put it onto the paper so that that thing would not be opened unless only the person who was allowed to open it would open it. And what happens in, in Jeremiah while the people are in captivity, God is basically so frustrated with the people, he basically says this, he says, to you, O Israel, I remove from you my signet ring. Almost, if you will, like a divorce. I am so done with you. 
I don't want to have anything to do with you people. <laughs> but we know that God's heart and his covenant can't be broken. So after 70 years of basically being divorced from the presence of God, you have God saying to Zerubbabel, guess what? You will be my signet ring. Let's get married. Let's get remarried. Right? You understand, if you're a guy, and I've seen this over the years, this isn't true for all of you, I know, but, but when a guy gets dumped by a girl, God uses that moment sometimes to bring that guy to Jesus. It doesn't always work with ladies, right? I don't know what it is. If a girl gets dumped, they're just consistent. If a guy gets dumped, it's a come-to-God moment, right? <laughs> and this is essentially, essentially what's happened is, is, is the people of Israel have gone through a type of breakup with the Lord during captivity, and then, it's, again, it's like you as a guy, you've been dumped, and then all of a sudden, the girl calls you and says, I've made a mistake. I mean, it's not God's made a mistake, but hey, I want to get back together with you, and the next thing you know, you're on cloud nine. And then that ring ultimately points to, again, the ultimate king, the ultimate ring, which is Jesus. Psalm 2, verse 6. For me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What's the holy hill? In part, it's the place of sacrifice, the place of crucifixion. And in another sense, it's to be in the presence of God, to be on the hill with the Lord, Matthew 27, 40. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, for if you were the son of God, you'll come, come down off of that cross. If you're really this sacrifice, if you're, really the, 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 if you're really the king, bring yourself down. And we know that that's the way our king rules, through sacrifice and forgiveness and giving himself for us. Daniel 2, 44, which was also preached during the Babylonian captivity. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Did you hear what Daniel just prophesied? One day, all kingdoms, Russia, America, China, Rome, will be absorbed into the kingdom of heaven. And there will be no other king no other ruler, no one else to serve, no one else to worship but Jesus. Are you looking forward to that? I am. I'm looking forward to it. I'm waiting for it. And so we come to this place where we start to have to go, okay, I understand. Now at this point, there's some themes in here that are important. There's the presence of God in the temple, the forgiveness of God in the temple, the connection back with God in the temple, God's word will be preached through Haggai. So we need to hear from the Lord. There's this theme that God is in control over all. He will shake the nations. He will be the ultimate king. He will ultimately bring his people in. And the house of David will be completely restored. From Zerubbabel to Jesus. And then we kind of come to the last part here, application. What do we do with all this? Look at chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 18. Let's just look at them together here for a few moments and see one of the things that are necessary for us as we begin to leave this place and celebrate Wayne and Sandy and then the Super Bowl. Chapter 1, 
verse 5. Now, therefore, says the Lord, consider your ways. There's the first one. Let's see if you can catch, catch the repetitive term. Consider your ways. Now go ahead and jump to chapter 2, verse 15. What do you think the word's going to be there? Now then, consider. Do you see it? I know some of you have a different translation. That's okay. Now jump to chapter 2, verse 18. What's the word? Consider. The, the wording consider, some of your translations might have it, have it better. Give careful thought. Give careful thought to your ways. Or the Hebrews had an idiom for this, which literally meant put your heart on your roads. Put your heart on your roads. Consider your ways. It's a call. One of the themes that exists in this book is a call for you and I to begin to consider, to think about where our heart is. And if our heart is on this path, where will that investment take me? Where will my life go? What will be the outcome of my life if I do this? Consider where your heart is. Consider where the road that your heart is on and ask yourself the question, what's going to come because of that path and because of that investment? Right? The Bible would say it this way. He who reaps into everlasting life will sow everlasting life. He who reaps into sin in the flesh will what? He who sows into the flesh will reap destruction, right? You, as you live your life, every decision you make, everything that you, you do, where you spend your time, who you talk to, the words you use, all of those things are little investments and either it's being invested into the flesh, which will go to destruction, or it's being invested in the things that are God's, which will go towards eternal life. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Now, I've actually kind of been going through this myself over the last month. Just consider my ways. And I've realized something through several conversations with the elders and, and meditating really a lot on my own. And, and I don't know what the last two years have been like for you, but if they've been anything like mine, it's been bananas. The last five years have been incredible, actually. We've gone through staff transition. We're celebrating Wayne in a few moments. Brad and Pam, staff members for a long time, they've moved out of the area. Our church looks nothing like it did two years ago. Most of you were new. Welcome to the family. The discussions I've had to have with the elders over the last two years about the coronavirus and what we will do and what we won't do. And, and then my own life as a human being like you, you enter into certain businesses, you encounter certain things. And everyone wants you to think a certain way. Culture wants you to think a certain way. And, and if I'm just really honest, some of those frustrations, some of those anxieties have come out in the pulpit. And I apologize for that. And it's time for us, as I told Kat and Bill Walton, who actually started to come to our church during the pandemic, I said, I finally feel like maybe we're settling in God's saying, just get back to it. Put the focus on Jesus. Put the focus on the word, not the culture, 
not your own emotions, not your own struggles, but let's get back. Let's consider our ways and consider how can we better edify Jesus, glorify Jesus, and glorify his church, and glorify his message, and lift him on high, because you don't need my opinion, and you don't need my frustrations, and you don't need my anxieties. You need Jesus and nothing else. And in some ways, <laughs> I'm thankful for the process. And in other ways, I, I kind of want to punch the Lord, you know? <laughs> but I won't do it because I know it won't end well. <laughs> Give careful thought to your ways. You know, it's one thing to be cerebral, though, isn't it? It's one thing to sit in your house and to study God's word and ask what God would say to you. But Haggai's really clear. Considering your ways isn't going to just cut it. You can't just think and you can't just consider and expect God to just all of a sudden move out of nowhere. You, you have to do something. So the second application for us is not just to consider, but to get our butts to work. Haggai chapter 1, verse 8. Very similar to the Great Commission where we've spent our time. Remember it says in, in Matthew 28, Go therefore into all nations. Haggai 1, 8, Go. Where? Go up that hill, get the wood, and build my house so that I can take pleasure in it. Climb the mountain. Go get the materials and put some strength and effort and vigor in it. And you know what's so amazing about this book, and I didn't even mention it, and I actually read it in Ezra, and you may not have picked up on it, it's just how amazing and sovereign God is. God releases the people. He gives them freedom from their captors after 70 years. They go to their hometown, which has been promised by God to be the promised land, the place where the Messiah will come, Jerusalem. And they're lazy and they don't build for 16 years. And what I didn't tell you, what Ezra tells us, do you know who pays for the temple? King Cyrus pays for the temple. God says to Cyrus, release these people, let them build and bankroll the thing. So the people for 16 years sat on their coffers, and they were lazy. And God's not okay with that. Go, build, Haggai 2.4, be strong, says it twice. And he also tells us that if, if we will work on the building, blessings will come. 1.14, the spirit of the Lord moved. They came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And then Haggai 2.19, he asked the question, is there seed in your barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree, they've yielded nothing. There's a drought. He's saying, you haven't worshiped me. You haven't built the house. You're not paying attention to me. You're comfortable in your homes. You got a flat screen TV and a killer surround sound system. You're ignoring me. But if you will get to work, he goes on and says, from this day on, I'll bless you. Consider your ways. 
get to work. And I will bless you. Invest in the kingdom. Invest in me, which is to invest into your heart that is the temple of God today. I like, you guys all know I'm a little fanboy, a piper. So I'll quote him again. Piper says this about the book. They lived in perpetual frustration and discontentment. The people of Judah, the tribes of Judah, nothing satisfied. If you devote yourselves to sowing and eating and drinking and clothing yourselves and earning wages, but neglect your ministry to the body of Christ, you will live in constant frustration. If you spend your time and energy seeking comfort and security from the world and do not spend yourself for the glory of God, every pleasure will leave its sour aftertaste of depression and guilt. And here's the word again, frustration. Both then and now, the real problem is not the neglect of a building, but indifference to the glory of God. The temple of the Old Testament existed for the glory of God, and the church today exists for the glory of God. Indifference to growth and spiritual prosperity of the church and its mission is always a sign of failure to, the, to love the glory of God. And the sour fruit of this failure is a life of chronic frustration. He who seeks to save his life will lose it to continual frustrations. But he who loses his life for the glory of God and the good of his cause will find life deep and fulfilling. Where are you investing? Are you frustrated? Because the text is essentially saying that some of your frustrations may be connected to the fact that you are not devoting your life to Jesus or to your glory or to his glory. Now, I like Piper. I like sometimes that he's wordy. But Jesus actually says it better, and he only needs a few words to do it. So can we conclude with the words of Christ on this? Seek first the kingdom of God. And all things will be added to you. So as we leave this place, And we celebrate a life of fruitful ministry from Wayne and Sandy. And we partake in food and drink. And then after that, we will leave, and there's a game on at 3.30, and we'll participate in more food and drink. <laughs> you know the good news to that is that God actually has something to say about that too. Whether you eat or whether you drink, do it to the glory of God. You can watch a Super Bowl and you can do it in a way that leads to life's frustrations. <laughs> or you can watch a Super Bowl and do it in such a way that God is glorified and your soul is fulfilled. You laugh, but it's 100% true. Whether you eat or drink, do the glory of God. Consider your ways. And I can tell you that as I am encouraging you to consider your ways, I myself will make a promise to do the same for you and for the glory of God. I always want to be in a place of continual reformation.
which just simply is a, a fancy way of saying, I desire to continue to be more focused on the word and more focused on Jesus and to continue to repent from those things that are keeping me from him because I don't want to see the world encroaching upon the fruit that God wants to give me and I don't want to see the desert encroach upon our church because God wants this kingdom, his kingdom, to grow in the Tahoe area. So what I share next is not just to brag or to boast, but the amount of people who are traveling from all over the place to come to this church because God has preached has just been an amazing thing to watch. We have a whole family that actually they travel an hour from the lake every Sunday to come worship Jesus with us because they can't find a church where they live. I think we've got 30 or 40 people from Reno, Nevada that travel every single week to worship Jesus with us because they can't find a church that is just focused not on the culture but on the Word of God. I want to stay that way. And I don't want to depart from it. And where I've done wrong, it's because I'm a sinner and I'm not your savior. Keep your eyes on Jesus and your eyes on the word and may your life be fruitful and may you multiply. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we're desperate. We're desperate for you. We may not even be fully aware of it. We think we have all kinds of needs. We think we need to move. We need to be married. We need to be more disciplined. We need more finances. We need more better politicians. And we need better schooling. And we need better science. Lord, no, no, no. We only have need of you. And as your disciples began to fall away when you walked this earth and you looked at the fellow few that were with you and you asked them that probing question for them to consider their own ways, will you leave me as well? And may we, like Peter, look you in the eyes and say, Lord, where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. So now we worship you and we adore you and we give you the attention and affection that only you deserve. In Jesus' name, the church said. Amen. I'm going to sing. And then I think um, Jenny Howard, are you around here somewhere? She, she's going she's gonna to tell us what to do, right? You're going to tell us what to do in a minute? After singing, we place all authority in the hands of Jenny Howard. Don't ask me what's happening because I don't know. <laughs> God bless you guys. Hope to see you next week. Let's pray. Let's sing. <laughs> Family, let's stand together. Opportunity for you to respond. Um, if you think about it in your head, there's only a few places that you sing, probably in the shower and at church. Um, oh, the bar. You guys go sing at the bar? Oh, I was like, man, right on to you, missional thinking, at the bar. No, just kidding, in the car.
Um, <laughs> if you guys look around, this is the body of Christ. We join together on Sundays to proclaim together what's in your heart and to affirm those things. Um, there's a gentleman at the end of first service that said, you know, I haven't heard that song in like 30 years, so you might not have heard this song in a long time either. But uh, Jesus, lover of my soul, and he has brought you out of the mire and the clay. Um, we're going to sing it a couple times, so if you don't know it, you'll know it the second time around. So, But let's sing together. Let's join in song because our Savior is worth it. Amen? All right, let's sing. <laughs> 